For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this afternoon, The Overcomers, Revelation 12, in particular verse 11. So in the the description of redemptive history that is given to us in Revelation chapter 12, uh, we've come to the point in our study of Revelation chapter 12 to this great victory won by the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 10. That great victory we know was won at the cross. Jesus Christ is victorious. The Lord was raised from the dead, confirming that victory. And he ascended to take his rightful place on the throne as the promised Davidic king, all in keeping with God's decree. Upon his ascension, upon his enthronement as king, the accuser, that great adversary, was thrown out of the courtroom of heaven. He was cast to the earth. And a proclamation of praise erupts in the vault of heaven, verse 10. Salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ have now come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Now, if you think with me, brothers and sisters, there is no longer an adversary that stands before God day and night making his futile case against the saints, against the brethren. There is no longer an adversary that stands before God day and night. There is now an advocate standing there, the Lord Jesus Christ, always living to make intercession for us, to sustain our case, pleading the merits of his own blood, his own shed blood before the throne of God. That's why Paul will say in Romans chapter eight, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who can condemn? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who even now is at the right hand of God, always making intercession for us. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? No one and no thing. Praise God. So as we come to verse 11 this afternoon, however, Satan, that slanderer, that diabolos, that adversary, although he has been cast out of heaven, he doesn't merely pack up and give up. He doesn't pack up and go home. Verse nine, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Cast to the earth with his demonic horde. Verse 12, Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. He's been cast out of the courtroom of heaven, cast out from before the bar of God's justice. Woe, though, to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. We'll see, he's going to pursue the seed of that woman into the wilderness and pursue her to persecute her, making war against her offspring. So the devil doesn't pack up and go home. He doesn't pack up and defeat. He persecutes the church in the wilderness, and he is relentless. He is merciless in his pursuit. We know from the scriptures that he commands a horde of demons. We see that exemplified in the the woes, the seals that have come before, uh, the trumpets that have come before. He commands a horde of demons. Ephesians chapter six, verses 11 and 12, principalities and powers. The devil prowls like a roaring lion, searching for prey. First Peter chapter five, verse eight. He is the one 
who takes away the seed that is sown by the wayside, Luke chapter 8, verse 12, lest those hearing should believe and be saved. He often appears in deceit as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. He tempts, he deceives. He is described as the deceiver of nations. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ should shine on them, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And having blinded the minds of unbelievers, he then focuses his efforts on the follower of his enemy. Verse 17, the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who are described as those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, in a hymn that we love, said that though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods then and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. The saints of God are described in our text this evening as those who triumph by or through the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives even to the death. Uh, that hymn, I think, encapsulates that sentiment from our verse this evening, from our text this evening. Thomas Brooks said, if God were not my friend, Satan would not be so much my enemy. And we have a very powerful friend in the Lord, don't we? So in persecuting his enemies then, Satan doesn't merely pack up and move out. In persecuting his enemies, his most powerful weapon is the lie. In John chapter 8, the Lord describes him saying, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. So he's not permitted to plead his case at the bar of God's justice any longer. The Lord Jesus Christ has secured the justification of his people by his own sacrifice for their sins. So because he can't plead his case at the bar of God's justice any longer, what does the devil then do? Rather than pack up and go home, the devil pleads his case everywhere else that he can. And he pleads a slanderous, deceitful, and despicable case of lies. He is the father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning, and he murders through the use of his lies. He can't plead that case before the bar of God's justice, and so he pleads that case, in one account, on the, in the court of public opinion. In the court of public opinion, he has a captive audience, an audience that... He is taken into his trap, described as in the snare of the wicked one, taken captive by him to do his will, 2 Timothy chapter 2. He prosecutes that case in the media. He prosecutes that case through music. He prosecutes that case through the public education complex. He prosecutes that case through our politics, through our government, through our judicial system. He prosecutes that case at the dinner table with family sometimes, at Thanksgiving, family dinners. He prosecutes that case everywhere he believes he has a hearing through the whispers and the subtle mocking of a lost so-called friend uh, through the betrayal of a very close friend, through the slander of enemies. The lie is his most consistent weapon. And 
often the most compelling venue wherein those lies are sown or wherein the devil prosecutes his case is in the conscience of a genuine believer. Brothers and sisters, we're at war. We're at war. And as much as we're at war without, um, with this world, the flesh and the devil, that war is waged within. It's not a war that's waged with swords and guns and tanks and weapons, carnal weapons. It's a war against, not against flesh and blood. It's a war against principalities and powers. It's a, a war that's often fought within your own heart, fought between your two ears and the gray matter of your own flesh. It's a war And this is the context in which you began your Christian life, this war, and this is the context in which you now live your Christian life, and it's in the context of that war that you're going to have to persevere to the end if you are to be saved. In the case of your conscience, what evidence is he bringing to the bench? He brings to the evidence, uh, he brings to the bench the evidence of your own sin against God. He appeals to the law as justifiable reason for your condemnation, when the Bible says that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Or he tempts you in your relationship to the law with legalism or with license, and that war rages, right? Satan uh, prosecuting that war against you. Go ahead, do it, right? You're forgiven. You're forgiven of your sin, so you can sin. You're allowed this little sin, little, right? Because you're forgiven. After all, you're forgiven. You sin, that's what you do. God forgives, that's what God does. God promises to forgive you, right? Satan prosecutes his war against you, his case against you. Or, with legalism, obeying him like this, this is the only way to be forgiven. And if I obey him like this, I am forgiven. I can rest assured that I'm forgiven because I obey him like this, you see? Lies and deceit. He perverts the gospel He perverts the gospel. And it's not that he perverts the gospel by necessarily whispering in your ear, but he perverts the gospel through a mass propaganda machine that essentially tempts your fallen flesh. Don't believe what God has said. It's the same lie that he told in the garden to Eve. Don't believe what God has said. A mass propaganda machine today that includes the professing church. Many churches today are sowing the lies of Satan. They have become synagogues of Satan by sowing Satan's lies. They pervert the gospel. And God's people are tempted um, to pervert the gospel themselves if they're not careful by believing Satan's lies. In the court of public opinion, even the thought of God is oppressive to the lost. The Lord testifies of them that their deeds are evil and so they hate him. They hate all those who represent him They suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. That's Romans chapter one. And Satan's propaganda machine to this lost world is all they need to, all the material they need to continue that case or to pursue that effort. Don't believe your lying eyes. They might say, there's nothing going on here. Satan lies. French poet Charles Baudelaire said that the greatest trick that ever, ever, ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And then Satan will use unbelievers, use those unbelievers whom he has deceived, whom he has blinded, even professing believers, to heap shame and scorn upon those who believe. That's the context of the war that we are facing, the conflict that we face. And the Bible says that he who endures to the end will be saved. Again, it's not a battle of flesh and blood. It's not a battle involving tanks and weapons and guns and swords. It's a battle for the truth. It's a battle against the lies of the enemy. 
It certainly does result often in physical death and physical torment and physical suffering. But it is a battle of ideologies. It is a battle of the truth against the lies of Satan. This is a battle. This is a conflict that we as the church are called to endure. The one who endures this conflict in faithfulness until the end, steadfast in faith, the Lord calls an overcomer, one who is overcome. Now first, in, in light of that name, in light of that term, an overcomer, consider the identity of those who overcome from verse 11 in our text. Consider the identity of the overcomers in verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Now the they in verse 11 gives us the identity of the overcomers. They in verse 11 refers to the brethren in verse 10. It's the nearest antecedent. Verse 10, the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. Verse 11, they overcame him. They referring to brethren. In verse 10, these are those who have been delivered from the accusations of their enemy. He was before the throne of God, accusing them before God day and night. These are those who have been delivered. They have been delivered when the salvation and the strength and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. In other words, brothers and sisters, this is a reference to you and I. This is a reference to the church. Old Testament and New Testament saints saved through the person and work of the Son of God, who at the cross was victorious in securing their salvation. They refer to the brethren, the church, the church made up of overcomers. Second, notice the nature of their work then in verse 11. They overcame him. The nature of the, the work of the overcomer is to overcome. They're referred to in verse 11 as, as having already overcome him. Notice the past tense there. It's an aorist. The grammar denoting past tense. This is what is called a prophetic a prophetic past. John is speaking proleptically. The future reality of this overcoming, the future reality so certain, it is referred to in the past tense. Now it begs the question, on what basis is it to be communicated with such certainty? On what basis can we say that this overcoming is that certain? They are certain to overcome because of their union with the overcomer. That's the reason their overcoming is certain. It's because of our union with the overcomer. Jesus Christ has overcome. The victory has been won. His overcoming is their overcoming. And they overcame him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb. They overcame because Jesus Christ has overcome. And they will most certainly overcome in their union with him. That may only be said, that may only be asserted, it may only be true because the overcoming has nothing to do with you. That's the only way that that, that statement can be made with certainty. If our perseverance, if our endurance, our overcoming was dependent in any way upon us, then we can be just as certain that it wouldn't be true of us. That it would never, we would never overcome. But because it is true of him, and because he has overcome, and because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, our overcoming is already certain. It is already as good as an accomplished reality. So it can be spoken of in verse 11 in terms of past tense. Brothers and sisters, although we may be embattled now, although we may face a present foe, 
although there, there yet remains an eternal Sabbath for the people of God that we have yet to enter, we are the overcomers. We have and we must therefore overcome. The victory has been won. It was won of the cross. And he who endures to the end will be saved. Right? Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. We overcome because he has overcome. So because of his overcoming, because of his work, our overcoming is certain. Nevertheless, brothers and sisters, overcome. To he who overcomes, he will grant you to sit with him on his throne. What does it mean then? Verse 11, what does it mean then to overcome? In Romans chapter 12, Paul speaks of overcoming evil with good. So we're to overcome evil with good. In Revelation 2, John refers to overcoming, Jesus Christ refers to overcoming by keeping the works of Christ until the end. Persevering in the works of Christ until the end. Not turning away from Jesus Christ in apostasy. Right? But in the context of Revelation chapter 12, it means to overcome, the pronoun there is him, Satan. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. Satan was cast down, cast to the earth, and they overcame, the brethren overcame him. The hymn of verse 11 referring to Satan. Now think with me. How is it that the overcomers overcome Satan? Practically, how are you and I to overcome Satan? What is entailed in our overcoming? Satan is described in verse 10 as the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before our God day and night. That's how he's described in verse 10. Now think with me. He no longer has a case to make before the, God, the, the bar of God's justice, before the courtroom of heaven. He no longer has a case to make. Why? Because Jesus Christ died for our sins and he has been raised from the dead. Our justification is secure. Our sins have been paid for. Satan has no longer any case to make. He can't make a case before the bar of God's justice any longer because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and is now enthroned and he has been cast out of heaven. Satan has been cast out of heaven. And then having been cast to the earth, no longer able to accuse the brethren before God day and night, it says that they, the brethren, the church, overcame him. If you think about this with me, I would submit to you that the overcoming of Satan here involves the people of God rendering all of his accusations as baseless. The people of God, by the blood of the, the lamb, by the word of their testimony, rendering all of the accusations of their arch enemy, all of the accusations of sin, Satan, a baseless thing, a null and void case by rendering his case in the, the visible manifestation or display of their own lives before a watching world, rendering the case of Satan null, rendering the case of Satan futile, baseless, false. The devil was cast out of the courtroom because his accusations had become baseless. The saints then on earth overcome him in proving or bearing testimony that his accusations are baseless. How do they do that? They do that by persevering in the faith, by the blood of the lamb, and by the word of their testimony. So third then, how is this work then accomplished? If they're going to overcome Satan by their own testimony, by bearing testimony that his accusations are baseless, how is this work accomplished? Verse 11 gives us two ways. By the blood of the lamb 
and by the word of their testimony. All believers, past, present, and future, overcome the devil by or through the blood of the lamb. When Satan tempts me to despair, upward I look and see him there. When Satan raises some charge against God's elect, it's in the blood of the lamb. It's the blood of the lamb that is my vindication. When Satan raises some accusation, it is the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ pleading the merit of his blood that stands as my vindication before the legal bar of God's justice. God has decreed a judgment in my favor on the basis of his son's own work, his son's own sacrifice for my sins. And God has given evidence of that by raising him from the dead. Therefore, therefore, when the devil... When the world, when the enemies of God make their judgments against you, God says, Isaiah 54, verse 17, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. So we overcome by or through the blood of the lamb. Hebrews chapter two. Verse 14, inasmuch then as the children, his people, the brethren, the church, inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, likewise shared in the same so that through his own death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, the devil, and release those who were subject all their lifetime to the bondage of death. So in the end then, they may kill your body, but that is all that they may do. You have already died. His death to sin is your death to sin, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Through Christ's own shed blood at Calvary, you have been declared not guilty of the accusations that are brought against you. Words, by the blood of the lamb and through the word of your testimony, you render the accusations of Satan baseless. Baseless. He has no basis on which to accuse you. He may appeal before the bar of your own conscience with his case from the law, but his case is baseless. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see? It is a futile, hopeless case. I love Martin Luther's response to that. When David, when David, when Satan is in his ear, you're a sinner. You've violated God's law. You're a sinner. Martin Luther responds, what of it? I know I'm a sinner, but I serve a savior who's forgiven me of my sin. He's taken my sin, right? Martin Luther's response, I think is, that's, that's the response of a Christian. That's, our, that's what our response needs to be. By the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. G.K. Beale. Just as Satan's and the world's guilty verdict against Christ was overturned through his resurrection from the dead, so too Christ's followers have their verdict reversed in the same manner through their identification with Christ's resurrection. Reverse his futile sentence against us. Jesus Christ says, Revelation chapter three, verse 12, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Brothers and sisters, we're to embrace that through faith. 
We're to embrace that through faith and we're to carry that through this life to the end, right? To the end, until the Lord Jesus Christ, till he's done with us and he calls us home or until he comes back. He who endures to the end will be saved. How do we endure to the end? How do we overcome? By the blood of the lamb, faith in those promises, faith in that reality. We have been justified. Who in the world can bring a charge against God's elect? No one and no thing. We're to carry that testimony, the word of that testimony. That's how we overcome. Jesus Christ himself, shamefully mocked, reviled, murdered on this earth by Satan's emissaries, but his resurrection from the dead vindicated him in the courtroom of heaven, taking away any right of the devil to prosecute his case any further. Revelation chapter one, verse 18, Jesus said, I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen. And Jesus says, I have the keys of Hades and death. As Jesus walked past Satan as being, he's being cast out of, the, uh, uh, of heaven and he snatches the keys out of his hand. I have the keys, I have the keys. Those are my keys, right? He has authority over death, over life. I have the keys of Hades and death. I, Jesus Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. John Newton, be then thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. Right? They overcome by the blood of the lamb. When you're assaulted by the demons and devils of this world, you can say, he's died. He's died and he has died for me. We overcome by the blood of the lamb. Second, these overcomers, they overcome by the word of their testimony, verse 11, by the word of their testimony. The testimony of their faith in the person of the gospel they were worshiping witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we overcome? By the blood of the lamb, through faith in Jesus Christ, by the word of our testimony, worshiping witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is in our heart, he is in our thoughts and on our mind. Because he is in our thoughts and on our mind, he is in our conversation, right? by the word of their testimony. He's in our conduct. He's in our desire. He's in our imaginations. He's in our aspirations. He's in our ambitions. He's in our hopes. He's in our dreams, right? Because he's in our heart, he's in our conversation. Every Christian is a witness for Jesus Christ. Both a personal witness with the word of our testimony, with personal evangelism, sharing the gospel. We're we're, we're preaching the gospel. We're gospelizing wherever we go because Jesus Christ is on our conversation. But it's also, brothers and sisters, he's in the very fabric, woven into the very fabric of our lives. I was thinking about this uh, with respect to uh, a little clip that Karen had sent me uh, earlier in the week. I was talking with this, uh, about this with a couple of brothers earlier. Um, There's a mom uh, disciplining her son, her little boy, small child. And she's being very loving, very patient, very kind, um, just doing exactly what a, a godly mother 
would do in disciplining her son. Her son's, you know, handling it okay, but he's learning. He's, he's you know, probably three, or, you know, maybe. And um, I was being very patient. And um, the son responds well, because he's been trained well. You can tell he's a, you know, well-behaved little boy. And it was just, a, it was a, a beautiful picture of godly, patient, Christian discipline in the home from a godly mother, right? A good testimony of Christianity in the home, right? A good testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ from this godly mother. Well, as I, I looked at that, I, I, I didn't just stop. I found myself looking down into the comments where this woman was being excoriated in the comments for being this terrible, tyrannical, um, abusive mother, abusing her child, right? She should allow that child to fully express himself and allow that child to, lit- she's oppressing that poor child. That's child ab- that child should be taken out of her home. Like the, the comments were over the top. And what that represented to me was the vitriol of this world against the testimony of a Christian mother in a Christian home enforcing godly discipline on her son. In other words, it was this contrast between God's wisdom in his word and the world's wisdom that vomits out this grotesque caricature of what a godly, what a mother is to do. And wisdom is justified by our children. Wisdom is justified by our children. We can look around today at the, the, the offspring of parents who have raised their children in worldly wisdom. And where has that gotten us? And we need to go back to what the Bible says. All that to say, all that to say is that you, you witness, you are overcoming by the word of your testimony in preaching the gospel to lost people, preaching the gospel, and, and by persevering according to God's word in this world with Christian principles, Christian ethics, Christian morals, Christian ideologies, Christian philosophies, Christian, Christian ways of doing things. In other words, when you obey the Lord Jesus Christ, you are obeying the Lord Jesus Christ in the context of this world, in the context of a watching world that is witnessing that. May our conduct throughout the time of your stay here, let your conduct be done in fear, um, knowing that we weren't redeemed with perishable things, knowing we were redeemed with the very blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and let us persevere in God's truth to the end as a witness, as a witness to this lost world. And may they see your good conduct, your chaste conduct, uh, and glorify God in the day of visitation. We're to overcome by the blood of the lamb, but we overcome also by the word of our testimony. And for example, that testimony of that godly mother to a lost world, it's a powerful testimony. So much so that it, it caused the ire of a bunch of people on whatever social media thing that was. Lastly, first they overcome by the blood of the lamb. Second, they overcome by the word of their testimony. Lastly then, the overcomer in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, is described then as the one who perseveres in faith, perseveres in his witness for Jesus Christ, despite persecution. Despite persecution, verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Two ways to understand this clause, and both of them are right. They did not love their lives, so they gave up their lives in death in the cause of Christ. In other words, they became martyrs. That's true. There are many of those who did not love their own lives to the point of being martyred for the faith. 
many, many in history that have, have done that. But also, there's another way to understand that clause. They did not love their lives to the very end of their lives. Both of those ways of looking at this are right. In other words, the emphasis, that second way of looking at that clause, is on their perseverance through or under persecution. I would submit to you that uh, in numerous places in Revelation, there's evidence that when the Bible uses martyroi or martus to describe the Christian, that word from where we derive our word martyr, someone who would die for the faith, they're using that word of all Christians, whether they have died for their faith or whether they have lived out their life faithfully to the very end and died as Christians, the Bible would refer to them as martus or martyroi. They are the martyrs, the ones who have persevered to the end. They are the overcomers. They have loved not their own lives, even to their own death, whether that death is in martyrdom or that death is at the end of their lives. Both ways of understanding that clause are right. The mark of a genuine overcomer then is that they love the Lord more than they love their own lives. That's the mark of a genuine overcomer. They, more, they love the Lord more than they love their earthly welfare, more than they love their family, more than they love their friends, more than they love the approval of men, more than they love earthly comforts, right? They love the Lord more. John, the apostle John, was an overcomer like this. Revelation chapter one, verse nine. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation, in the tribulation, John, the apostle in the first century was a companion with us in the tribulation, not reserved for some far off future date, right? Tribulation is now. His, he is our brother and companion in the tribulation, in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, who was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John was exiled to the prison island of Patmos because of the word of his testimony. Uh, he endured, John was an overcomer because he endured to the end by the blood of the lamb or through the blood of the lamb and by the word of his testimony, loving not his own life even to the death. When I think about this, I think about the, the testimony of our Lord in John chapter 13, right? In John chapter 13, Jesus is described as loving his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end, the end of himself. He loved them fully with everything that he is, right? He loved them to the end, to the uttermost he loved them, and he loved them to the very end of himself, to the very end of his life, giving up his life, giving up his body and death voluntarily on the cross. These are the overcomers. And brothers and sisters, we're called to be overcomers. There are many, many examples of this in scripture, what it means to overcome, what it looks like to overcome. And I'm reminded of one place in particular, the hall of faith from Hebrews 11. There are many examples in the hall of faith from Hebrews 11. If you want to turn there with me quickly, we'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 11. Um, it's often called the hall of faith. And many would say, uh, it's a, there are testimonies or these are trophies, if you will. It's like walking through a trophy room of people who've had great faith in the Lord, right? And accomplished great things through their faith. Hebrews 11 is not about men or women doing great things um, through their faith. It's a testimony of God doing great things through the faith of his people, right? Hebrews 11 is a triumphant 
um, uh, magnificent display or manifestation of what God does through the faith of his people. Uh, these were, many of them, you know the stories, imperfect, sinful, sinful people. Uh, God accomplished great things through the means of their faith. So in the first you know, 12 verses or so, the example of Moses is brought up, the example of um, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, all dying in faith. Verse 13, these, all these examples all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. In other words, they didn't have those things as a present possession. They died in faith, seeing those things afar off and hoping in them, trusting the Lord for those things. They were assured of them through faith. They embraced them, verse 13, uh, confessed that they were then strangers, aliens, pilgrims on this earth. This earth is not our home. Four, verse 14, those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. They seek a homeland. Our citizenship is not here. This is not our home. They persevere to the end by the word of their testimony. Verse 15, and truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. They loved not their own lives even to the death. You see, not accepting a better life, if you will, in this life, so to speak. They had hopes of a future heavenly country. And the, he gives us the example of Abraham, gives us the example of Moses. Drop down to verse 35. Others like these, they were tortured, not accepting deliverance. They loved not their lives even to the point of death so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Verse 36, still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two. They were tempted, slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. They did not love their lives to the death overcome, right? They overcame by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verse one, we have the implications of all of that. You ever read like Christian biographies? Uh, I would just highly commend um, as part of your reading, pick up a good Christian biography. Um, it's just compelling. It's so motivating, strengthening, encouraging, very helpful. And we have just the greatest of Christian biographies in the Bible. And we've just heard several in Hebrews chapter 11. And then we get the implication in Hebrews chapter 12, the application of these things in Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, right? In light of these things, therefore, we also, brothers and sisters, love not your own life, even to the point of your death, even to the end of yourselves. Don't love this world. Don't love your own life. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us then lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured even the cross, despising the shame, counting it a common thing. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Son of God has been raised, has been enthroned. He now sits on the throne of David in the everlasting kingdom and we'll be raised with him. 
In summary, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Great victory has been won. Those in Hebrews 11 conquered by virtue of that great victory. They conquered by virtue of that victory that would be won by Jesus Christ at the cross. And now, brothers and sisters, we conquer. We go forth in faith in light of that great victory that is won on our behalf at the cross. And we, as they, are to overcome Satan. We're to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil by the blood of the Lamb one who died and gave himself for us, who has won the victory, who is seated and throned in the kingdom. We are to overcome through faith in him and by the word of our testimony, living for the Lord Jesus Christ to our deaths, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified to our deaths and not loving our own lives even to the death. He who endures to the end will be saved. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for this encouragement from your word. And thank you, Lord, for this gracious definition of the overcomer. And we rejoiced to, we rejoiced to know, Lord, that if we, were to, if we were to be required to overcome in our own strength, we would certainly be lost. But we rejoice to know that our Lord Jesus Christ has overcome. And by virtue of our union with him, his death has become our death. His rex- resurrection is our resurrection. His victory is our victory. His uh, overcoming is our overcoming. And we praise you that it's in our union with him that we can be reassured that we don't preserve ourselves, that we're not fighting in our own strength. The, the matter is not in question. We're not awaiting the, the panel of judges after the 12th round, after the bell has rung, the victory has already been won. The devil's been knocked out and we are, Lord, just awaiting our inheritance. And we're grateful to you, Lord, for this promise that um, we overcome by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and by the word of our testimony, loving not our lives even to the death. And praise you and thank you that that victory has been won. And Lord, we also acknowledge at the very same time that you've commanded us to overcome We're given clear commands to persevere through this age, to cling to Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you, by the strength of your spirit, would supply us with strength to cling, that you would hold us fast, and at the same time, you would strengthen us to cling, that you would use your word as a means to cause us to cling, and that, again, Lord, as we cling to you, you would hold us fast to the end. We're grateful, Lord for this instruction. Help us to live this out during this age as we consider ourselves in this age to be strangers and pilgrims and foreigners in this land because we seek a better homeland, a better country. We seek a tent, a building whose maker is God and we long for that day. Thank you, Lord, for this help. Thank you for your word to us. Strengthen us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Hello and thanks for listening. 
My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.